The Lord be with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. We welcome you to Marsh Chapel on this Sunday as we join together in scripture and song in praise of God. Whether you are seated here in the nave of the chapel, listening live via WBUR at 90.9 FM in the greater Boston area, listening over the internet at WBUR.org, or listening later via the podcast, please know that you are a valued part of our community. My name is Jessica Chica, and I have the pleasure of serving as the University Chaplain for International Students here at Marsh Chapel. Our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, is traveling this week and sends his warm regards to each of you. Today we gather for the second Sunday in Lent with our special guest preacher and colleague, the Reverend Jennifer Quigley. Reverend Quigley is our chapel associate for vocational discernment here at Marsh Chapel, as well as an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. We thank her for continuing our Lenten reflection on the work of Thomas Merton this morning. We gather today to worship God and be reminded of the divine gifts of grace and love which join us together in the body of Christ. Let us stand as we are able in praise of God.
Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is to always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We now enter into a time of reflection on both the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone that might burden us throughout our days. As the choir sings the Kyrie, let us pray, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. rich in mercy, loved us even when we were dead in sin and made us alive together with Christ. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 and 15 through 16. When Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The word of the Lord.
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 22 with the Antiphon. Praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. For shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark chapter 8 verses 31 through 38. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. Lord. 
Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some years ago, I was at a clergy training. For those of you who have attended day-long trainings, you will have some sense of what this felt like. Forgettable food, unlimited caffeine to counteract the effects of a too warm room, and wide swings between sparkling presentations and somniloquy. But one brief moment from that day is seared into memory. The trainer had just finished explaining the practice of having open door or glass door one-on-one -on -one meetings with congregants. We were using a video series from the Faith Trust Institute, which offers the gold standard for ethics and boundaries training for faith leaders from a variety of traditions, from rabbis to ministers to Buddhist monks. We use that training here at Marsh Chapel. And the trainer decided to go a bit off script, and he shared that a male bishop he worked with would not drive to any district meeting, church visit, or any other event alone with a woman. This male bishop would share a car for the ride with a male clergy colleague, but in order to be above reproach, he would make sure to take separate cars when driving to a meeting with a female clergy colleague. In this Midwestern setting, the circuits were long and the districts far apart. This is the part of the country where traveling 100 miles can take 100 minutes, with flat farmland as far as the eye can see. True heirs of the Wesleyan heritage, the bishop and the cabinet would often put 50,000 miles a year on their cars. Something felt wrong about the comment, and I felt the sudden urge to ask, why? But a number of ways in which I'd been socialized held me back. He stood in the front of the room as a teacher, and I sat in the back as a student. Unless I could explain why his statement was problematic, I would be interrupted. And besides, I could sidetrack the conversation and drag out an already long day. He was my elder, 
and I was surrounded by clergy with decades more life and ministry experience. I was barely of legal drinking age, and the 40 and 50-something second career pastor seemed to not even blink at the comment. I must be too young to get it. As a child, I'd been an incredibly curious and loquacious little girl who'd learned that asking why too many times was a great way to annoy your parents. I had learned to be more precise in my language and that adults responded better to a question with more detail and less emotion. This reaction I was having felt too sudden to be rational. And he was a man, married for nearly two decades, and I was a woman, a newlywed, who'd recently been given a hotel room with twin beds instead of a queen at annual conference after a snafu where the front desk could not understand why I hadn't changed my last name when I got married. What did I know of what made a marriage over work over the decades? And what did I know of the world of men and the choices they made to act ethically and keep boundaries? All these thoughts and more ran through my mind so quickly that it would take me months to disentangle them from one another. All these anxieties were tamped down internally, and I said nothing. The moment passed quickly, as these moments often do in silence. And later, as I fumed in my room, the why of why I had felt the urge to ask why finally emerged into the forefront. Why was the bishop only moving through a world of men? At the time of this training, a single district superintendent was a woman, and the cabinet, nearly two dozen conference-level officials, had just three women on staff, one of whom was the bishop's assistant. Why were there so few women on the conference staff? Even if it was not deliberate exclusionary practice, and I don't think it was, this bishop would regularly spend hours upon hours one-on-one -on -one with his fellow male clergy. Three hours each way to a district meeting leaves a lot of time for talking about ministry, for asking advice, and for networking. Those hours add up, and leaders frequently choose those whom they know, trust, and have spent time with to elevate to positions of authority. This attempt to behave above reproach had hurt the career opportunities of countless female clergy. Why couldn't the bishop just keep a policy of not traveling one-on-one -on -one in a car with anyone, to travel in groups, or alone? This attempt at ethical leadership was not ethical and not leadership, and it propagated a more homogenous clergy, a more homogenous cabinet, and a more homogeneous church. But weighing my options, I decided not to speak up. I was not even commissioned, let alone ordained, and I did not have the security of an appointment. I did not expect any kind of formal retaliation, but I did not want the headache of confrontation. The comment itself and the hundreds of micro-decisions I needed to make about whether or not to respond in the moment were exhausting. I did not want the additional exhaustion of drawing out the moment. And besides, the moment had passed and I had not spoken up in that moment. Silence often begets silence. But the gospel, the good news, is a spoken word. It's a good, true, and spoken word. And God speaks to us in a good word of relationship, of covenantal relationship, of the potential for relationship with God and with one another. The God who spoke us into being and sent a word to live among us gives us the freedom and enlivening spirit to speak to one another. And the time is always right to speak right. 
Our text this morning from Genesis 17 is the foundation of the covenant God makes with Abraham and Sarah. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. From God's offer of relationship with us, we learn three important things about how we are to live with God and with one another. First, and too often overlooked, God offers covenantal relationship to women as well as men. It is not just that Abraham is our father in faith, but that Sarah is our mother in faith, the mother of the covenant. When we limit the imagination of our leadership in our faith communities and in our other work communities, we close off the divine imagination that calls women and men equally. Second, covenantal relationship is based on mutuality and freedom. The covenant into which God calls Abraham and Sarah is the definition of an unequal power dynamic. After all, God is God, and we are not. But God does not abuse that power. God does not force Abraham and Sarah to do what God wants. God calls and invites humanity into divine relationship, and we are given the freedom to respond to live up to the high calling to which we are called, to walk before God and be blameless. God honors that divine image that we bear. God offers to and does hold up God's end of the covenant. But God also offers us divine freedom for humanity to do what God asks of us. Third, God models how to have relationship with one another when there's a power imbalance whether it is a doctor-patient relationship, a student-teacher relationship, a pastor-congregant relationship, an employer-employee relationship, or any other of the myriad ways in which we humans have structured ourselves into interpersonal dynamics where power is not shared equally, we are called to exercise authority with responsibility. Power does not naturally lead to abuse, but power that is abused does. God, in relationship with Abraham and Sarah, does not demand a cult of personality, but instead offers a covenant of mutuality. Jesus, in our Gospels today, also has something to say to systems of abusive power. The cross, the method of execution used by an abusive, oppressive state, was intended to crush those whom it killed, and the hopes of those who watched. The cross was meant to cut off air to resistance, to speech, to breath, and to life. But Jesus has something to say about that. To Peter, who attempts to change the subject, who denies the possibility that an abusive system could harm his teacher, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. No one is too smart or too kind or too anything to be above risk when abusive systems of power and abusive persons are elevated to positions of power. And to those in authority who do abuse their power, who create a system to prop up their own power by crushing others, Jesus asks, pointedly, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and lose their soul? And to those who would hope to lead, to the disciples, who might be at risk in taking power to abuse it, Jesus warns, deny yourself, take up that cross. 
Now, too often, this catchphrase has been used abusively by pastors urging people to stay with their abusers. To them, I say, as um, one of my colleagues, a brilliant pastor and biblical scholar often puts it, you ain't reading it right. The cross is an attempted abuse of power. To pick up a cross, to push against its strain and weight, and to keep breathing is an act of resistance. It's a speech act, and it breathes life even in the midst of death. Following Jesus requires not abusing power, and it also demands that we strain against those human systems we've created, which to attempt to crush through abusive power. For Jesus also tells us that the cross is not the end, and that the grave is not victorious. The facade of abusive power will at some day, even if it is on the great lasting day, crumble and fall. The Me Too movement, first begun by Tarana Burke in 2007, has brought to the fore the pervasive problems of sexual abuse and harassment. From hotel cleaning staff to assembly line workers, from judicial clerks to academics, women have been speaking out against the ways in which persons have abused their power and the ways in which systems have often ignored and enabled that abuse to continue sometimes for years, and faith communities have not been above the fray. One only has to follow the hashtag church Two to hear stories from women and men who've been harassed and abused within their church communities. Me Too is about the basics. It is about naming the problem of power. Sexual harassment and sexual abuse are ultimately about power and not sex. And sometimes it is good for the church to go over the basics. Religious organizations need to be able to talk about the problem of power, to teach that it is wrong to abuse power, and to develop theologies about power. We need to teach our children these things, but sometimes we need to remind ourselves as well. The things that we know are wrong, we should still take the time to say are wrong. The things we don't think need repeating, are often exactly the things that do need repeating. We must remind ourselves and teach our children that abuse is wrong. Physical abuse is wrong. Emotional, spiritual, verbal, and psychological abuse are wrong. Intimate relationships must have mutuality as their base. One should be able to share strength and vulnerability in equal measure with a partner. And this is why it is unethical for a person who is in authority position over another to enter into an intimate relationship with a person who is reliant upon them, whether for medical treatment, classroom learning, spiritual guidance, athletic coaching, or a paycheck. There's another facet of the Me Too movement, and it relates to the problematic ways in which some men have tried to protect women. How can a military man, for example, who bemoans a time when women were considered sacred and looked upon with great honor, praise the integrity of a man who's been accused of physical abuse by three former partners. It seems to boggle the mind, but with a theology of mutuality, of covenantal relationship, we're able to see through the fog of obfuscation and name the ways in which this statement and those actions are actually two sides of the same coin. 
Women are considered sacred and looked upon with great honor. This lament for a halcyon bygone era is a description better suited to objects than people. You might describe a precious possession this way, perhaps a family heirloom set on display, or a piece of art hanging on your wall, or an artifact donated to a museum. In this logic, women are first and foremost objects to be protected and not colleagues who are presumed to be persons of integrity, whose words should be believed. In a workplace dominated by men with certain expectations of what roles women play in society and in the workplace, a man's word is seen as stacking high against these claims, even of multiple women. This, of course, is an extreme example. But behind every Me Too story of extreme abuse and harassment lie hundreds of smaller moments, of opportunities missed, invitations not extended, and mentoring overlooked. Hundreds of, say, offhand comments at a day-long training that reveal the problems that we have concealed for too long. The Lenten season is a time for introspection and preparation. It's a good time to take stock, to look squarely at the troubles of the world, and to prepare ourselves for the great mystery of Holy Week that encompasses all of the hurt and hope of creation. Perhaps this Lent, you can think back to your own relationships, both personal and professional, is there a place of hurt that you have buried? Perhaps this Lent, think about speaking to a therapist, to a close friend, to yourself in a journal, or perhaps just to God in prayer. Is there a relationship in which you did not act in mutuality, where you took for granted or even took advantage of the power you had over others? Perhaps this Lent, you will take time and space for an examination of conscience, repentance, and change. In preparation for this sermon and this Lenten series, I've been doing a lot of swimming around in Thomas Merton, who was a truly prolific writer. One only needs to consider the bibliography page on the Thomas Merton Society to get a sense that there are far more stories than seven in the Merton Mountain. But when I think about power, mutuality, and the complex ways in which we relate to one another and to God, I found comfort and meaning in Merton's famous prayer on direction and discernment. And I thought I would close with that. Would you be in prayer with me? My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. 
I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Please be seated. We now come to a time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift our lives and ourselves up to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord.
the name of God, the most beneficent and merciful, we join together today to ask for forgiveness and guidance in what has occurred in our world. We pray for coexistence so that the next generation can live in a more pluralistic world. We pray that you guide our leaders to listen to the people performing acts of social justice so that we can avoid tragedies and live in a world that represents all of us, regardless of where we come from. We pray for our brothers and sisters living in chaos throughout the world. We pray that they be relieved of the catastrophe that they endure each day. We pray for the victims facing or recovering from domestic or sexual assault. We pray for the survivors who suffer. We pray for the people of Parkland, Florida, just as we pray for the people of Eastern Luka. Our hearts cry when our neighbors suffer. We ask for guidance so that we can live in a more peaceful and tolerant world, where we all care for one another. We pray with peace, love, and positivity. Amen. And now with the confidence of the people of God, we pray. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, Good morning. We welcome you again to Marsh Chapel on this midwinter Sunday. Thank you for joining us as a part of our community of worship today. Uh, whether you are here in the sanctuary listening on the radio or live stream or later via, via our podcast. Um, for those of you joining us in the sanctuary, we invite you to fill out your name and contact information in the red pads found along the center aisle of each pew. This will help us to get to know you better and for you to get to know one another better. Children attending the service and interested in being a part of our children's ministry are invited to exit during the final hymn with our Marsh Associates, uh, Devin Harvin, who's in the congregation, Devin, <laughs> and uh, Phoebe uh, Oler, who will, is up here in the choir. Um, so please feel free to exit during the final hymn if you would like to participate in that. Um, following the service, please join us for refreshments and fellowship downstairs in the Marsh Room uh, at our weekly coffee hour. Uh, thank you to the Inner Strength Gospel Choir and their director, Herb Jones, for leading us in musical contemplation this morning. <laughs> um, there are many opportunities to be involved in at 
Marsh Chapel outside of worship here on Sunday morning. We encourage you to look at the last page of our bulletin for our regular weekly offerings, including musical opportunities like the Thurman Choir, activism like our abolitionist chapel, fellowship opportunities like Monday community dinner, education like our money, mo, mo, eh, Sunday morning study group, and Bible study, and creative opportunities like Create Space. We hope you will take advantage of the varied ministries offered here at Marsh Chapel. Next Sunday at 12.30 p.m. is another installment of our St. John Passion Lecture Series. Please join us to learn more about the history, theology, and background behind this powerful piece. For all other news and upcoming events, please visit the chapel website at bu.edu chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. Now, as the ushers wait upon us for the offering, may we remember that it is a gift and a discipline to be a giver.
divine comfort, give us grace to keep our covenants of mutuality. In all things, may our prayer be, Lord, I want Jesus to walk with me. Amen. beloved, may you go forth in peace to love and serve the living God. Amen.